are now listening to Soundspace, the podcast where we explore the space of sound. Hey guys, welcome back to Soundspace. This is a brand new episode. I'm here with Q, our brand new co-host. Uh, what's brand up, Q? New. What have you been up to? How are you doing? Yeah, brand I'm good, new. I'm good. Fresh. <laughs> That's right. I'm straight out of the box. Um, <laughs> I've been good, man. I've been good. I'm excited to uh, excited to dive into today's topic because I have some I have some thoughts. I have some opinions, and we will get all, in, into all of those things. Yeah, we like thoughts. We like opinions. We like both of those things. Today's topic is essentially the history of music genres would you say that's that's appropriate well more specifically like when do they collide when do crossovers happen when do fusions happen those those little moments in in musical history when let's say two different cultures come together and something new and wonderful is is created because those are really like the most interesting moments of music i would say oh yeah do you agree totally it it just brings something like, new like, like uh, and like outrageous yeah. sometimes, you know. Uh, but that's what that's what breaks barriers. That's what builds new new genres, new subgenres, new ideas. You know, that's what pushes creativity. So when I think about that, the first example that pops into my head, and I know that we're going to talk about R and B and EDM and and the the millions of like the fracturing of genres in that world. But the first thing that pops into my head because of my background is when jazz. What was sort of came into being a hundred years ago? Mm-hmm. It was there was a mixture. This is one of the this is one of the most interesting cases of a genre being created because the two worlds that were coming together were the world of academics, like musicians that had gone to university to learn how to play clarinet. Like they have a, a like a PhD in in performing, right? And then they would they were playing in these groups. The uh, the flip side of the coin, like the other uh, group that was coming in, was like very uh, musicians coming from poverty. They they had no they they're not going to play arpeggios. You know, they're not technically advanced people, right? But they had a lot to say, and they had uh, they have a certain soul to their performance that comes from a, like a life of hardship. There's more. There it creates a sense of community around the music because that's to a lot of people that's like their only relief in life is just like at the end of a like a horrible long work day working for like a like a just miserable like coal mines like just terrible jobs that still existed 100 years ago sure of course that was that was their only respite so like these two worlds came to get like the academics um playing classical and things like that and then these blues musicians and the only spot that they would able they were, they were able to meet in were the brothels that existed at the time. Yeah, exactly. Those were the only desegregated part of society because it was already an illegal establishment, so those laws did not affect them. And that's the only time that white and black musicians would come together, and jazz was born out of that. It's such an interesting little sociological, like, uh, uh, phenomenon that happened when, like, this, this really soulful blues music met musicians who had, like, really technically advanced knowledge. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my favorite little historical example of like two genres coming together because I'm a jazz guy and I'm you know I was learning piano as a kid for sure. That's the stuff that really really interests me. But like what what's what's the first thing that you think of? Honestly, I was just like gonna say something similar. Combo? I was gonna say you know the 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 fusion the transition between blues to rock and roll and then rock and roll to metal and then and so forth. Right. So um, yeah. 
that, that that's what comes to my mind and obviously on the other spectrum the more electronic spectrum uh you get the invention of the roland 808 drum machine that led to hip-hop and oh man that's just, the weirdest case isn't it like yeah. just the because the the unintended explosion of that uh, drum that uh, sample yeah that was completely that unintentional sound, those drums because that machine it's was such a, flop. a weird evolution right yeah that machine was a flop yeah because like when, when it came out and everyone was like ah this sounds cheap this sounds very digital and you know, like crappy like no one wanted to use it and then like it someone just found it yeah and like created a sound in just like the depths of like druggy well like, yes sleazy was it was it harlem right was that um, the area where it kind of started out? I actually should probably know this, but but what's wild is that, oh, it must have been a uh, Africa Bambada. I guess that would be the first time that you were hearing those like really like fast paced samples mm-hmm. with like very low, very clearly low budget sounding productions. But it was just such a new sound that it was like the the, the talk of the town, like like New York City scene in like oh, the yeah. late seventies, like the early early days of of hip hop. So like. This this silly little 808 machine is now complete. Like, like if you listen to a pop record, Ariana Grande or something, the drum tones are probably 808s. Like that, that it has permeated every level of the music industry from the the bottom underground stuff on SoundCloud, just distorted like little pump. You know, rappers just yelling about like over a a, a laptop microphone. Those. And then all the way up to the top, like the Billboard Top 10, you look at it at a given time, it's, it's like, okay, Drake, you know, uh, who, who's this number one right now? Roddy Rich. that's what I was trying to say. All these trap artists are like, that's what I mean. It's just like this, these drum tones have now spread from the top to the bottom of the music industry. And that's that's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's crazy because... Like when you look back at the history of it and, and and where these things come from, it's from what you said before and what I said about the 808 machine, the two things that they have in common is these are probably artists that wouldn't be heard. It seems like, it kind of seems like all of all of the most interesting moments in, in music history were kind of happy accidents, weren't they? Like no yeah, one intended little Bob Ross's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, I was I was blanking on his name, but yes, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So I'm actually I'm actually scrolling through the um through the uh, Billboard top 10 right now. I believe at this point we are looking at 20 years, 20 plus years of hip hop being the primary dominant genre of the pop sphere. Has that ever has that kind of longevity ever happened before? Because I feel like genres were were kind of uh there was a novelty to them and they would just kind of come and go pretty quick. Before yeah. you know, like think about like the backlash of disco. Like after only sure. a few years of it being the biggest thing, maybe four years, people were like burning records and like like tearing up. Uh, they they were like protesting, and there's so much backlash of just they were got sick of it. And yeah. for and some reason, that just has not happened yet. Like I keep waiting for the day where it's like, are people gonna get tired of like? trap beats and and like oh probably that's like the basis of it is it gonna happen because i feel like i've been waiting for it to happen for like six years and it just <laughs> it it has not not that you're i waiting like for the genre you're waiting for hip-hop to die yeah I'm, I'm, I'm like rubbing my hands together like when is it gonna be no i'm kidding <laughs> but um i'm a fan of the genre 
I'm just kind of shocked at how long it has been like the dominant thing in the pop world. Yeah, I think it, it. I think it might stay for a little while longer because there's so much you can do with it. There's so much, and I, at some point, when do you stop calling it hip hop, and when do you start calling it something else? You know, it's just not specific enough. Uh, it's it's a- too anymore. vague. There's too many subgenres. There's too many um, fusions. There's too many great ideas throwing around or bad ideas. You know, but um, there's just too much going on to really you know know when to start labeling it something else. There's definitely a, a, a point, like a critical mass in a genre when you go, okay, this is no longer uh, a relevant descriptor anymore. Like if you mm-hmm. if you ask someone, what's your favorite type of music? And they say, oh, I really like rock. No one really yeah. says that because it's like, that just doesn't mean anything. Like what's specific? You gotta be more specific. Yeah, it's like, are you, that, yeah. that encompasses everything from like metal stuff to like poppy rock to like yeah. experimental I mean, I guess... thing. You know, it, it's just like, People, there's always a follow-up question because it's just so... But that was not the case in the 50s. If you say rock, that's... Uh, oh, Everybody yeah. knew what you're talking about. That new yeah. thing that's the talk of the town, yeah, it's a very specific answer. But this, at the same time, um, there's one main major difference between the 50s and today. What's that? Is that things move so much quicker. Technology has moved so much quicker. We mm-hmm. are moving faster. And it's, it's ironic that... Be, since we're moving faster technologically, uh, that we're still so infatuated by hip hop, you know, it, that that's stuck around for the longest, you know. Well, I mean, not really because you know, rock around, rock and roll is still around, and and metal is still around. But I'm just saying for the 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 forefront, the the mainstream. Oh, I see what you mean. Uh, yeah, and the the surprising bit is that the trend comes towards uh, fads coming and going faster and faster as time goes on. And mm-hmm. I, I assume that's because of technology. Like it used to take it used to take uh, two years for a sound to make its way around town or through the country because like radio and newspapers travel slower than TikTok and, and things like that. Absolutely. So so things come and go so fast now. People talk about like fifteen minutes of fame, et cetera. But yeah. we've seen the the reverse effect. Is that there? There's surprising longevity to the popularity of hip hop. I would say 25 years now, it it has been like the the primary thing, the the, the zeitgeist to use a big fancy word. And I'm, I'm not flexing my ability I, I, of uh, vocabulary. I I just learned what that word means. So say that word. And zeitgeist. What does that mean? It means yeah. the um the mentality of where the culture is at right now. Like what is okay. Yeah. It's kind of a you know what let me let me Google the proper definition because I feel like I'm not doing it justice right now. It is the defining spirit or mood of a particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time. Oh, look at me, look at me, cue the. I scholar. think that's a perfect word to describe what we're talking about right now. That's yeah, that's absolutely the best word to describe. Yeah, the musical zeitgeist. And if you say it and pronounce it correctly, you can feel really smart. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the, on to the, the uh, specifically the topic of today. We're talking about electronic music, the advent. Yeah. Of, of, well, I, mean, I guess the synthesi- you know. synthesizer would be in the uh, 1940s, right? Yeah. And the fracturing that has happened over the last, uh, wow, 80 years since that event. So what are some of the interesting moments of like um, cross- uh, cultural crossover in the, in the electronic world to you? Because we're talking about Kei 
which is an artist that you told me uh, on yeah. like you told me to check out. I just finished listening to Bubba, like okay. 2016 uh, album. Very much enjoyed it. I think um, uh, uh, track 10, what was that called? Uh, what You Need featuring Charlotte Day Wilson was probably my favorite one. Do you know that one? Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. great. The the bass sits so perfectly in that mix. I was just like, I, like I could not keep my foot still, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, music is produced so cleanly that it just like scratches an itch in your brain. It's really cool stuff. And I guess I would call that, I guess I would call that an R&B uh, mixture, house R&B with like some really, really, really old school funk samples that they would use yeah. in the early days of hip hop. And I have a theory about that album. I think the first track is a statement because if you remember what happens, literally you put on the record, like, I mean, assuming it's you're listening to this on a record, which Not is unlikely record, in 2016, yeah. but you put on, the first thing you hear is that classic, classic bongo sample that we have all heard in a thousand hip hop songs because mm-hmm. it was just unavoidable for the longest time because it's so good like it's so groovy it's like the almond break like there's there's little samples that have just been picked up by the entire community and then you just hear them everywhere and that bongo sample is probably the most sampled thing in the oh, planet yeah. next to the Sa- almond samples break. alone are, are an episode of its own you know that's oh iconic sample a- yeah absolutely um so so the that's the first thing that you hear when you put on this kitchenette album and then it cuts out immediately. And then it gets replaced with this kind of modern R&B, like smooth thing. And it just transitions out. And then half, yeah. like halfway through the verse, I believe, bongos come back. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. That really does come out swinging with the concept of the album. It's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some old stuff and we're going to bring it into the modern. You know, all these th- things that, you know, kids these days might not even be familiar with. Because yeah. that's a previous generation of hip hop music. He's like, we're gonna take that stuff, we're gonna breathe new life into it in this kind of like mm-hmm. funky R and B like new wave of it, new like iteration of it. Like if if the weekend was making an album that was a kind of like a seventies retro thing. You know what I'm saying? Well yeah, I mean So like he, I, I I really I think he exclusively used vintage equipment, vintage um synths Is that right? to create his uh his album. I can't. Remember, uh, I think it's after hours. Uh, I'm talking about the weekend now. Oh, the the weekend. Sorry, I thought we were on kitchen out. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. That, that would make but sense. Yeah. Like I, I was recognizing very very specific sounds on that album from like you know like take on yeah me, very like familiar classic sounds. 80s uh, pop songs like that when those synths were just like it, I guess you could call the 80s like a golden era of synths being used in that way before there was a bit yeah. of a uh, there was a bit of a a return to acoustic instruments, like a Luddite approach to production in the 90s. Well, analog. I mean, like, it, yeah, analog. Than thank you. Anything. I was like fumbling for that word for some reason. Um, oh, good. Um, yeah, the analog distortion, the classic, uh, I don't know, the Juno, you know, or the... Um, I was playing a, a real Juno the other day. Oh, really? It's pretty fun. I, do, you, do you find that you prefer like a, a physical uh, synthesizer? Over like how much to what degree do you do you value that? Because I think ninety percent of the producers that I talk to have fully moved on to plugins. That like the I think most people are of the opinion that yeah you can't really mimic a guitar, you can't really mimic obviously the human voice. So th- these certain things are kept real, but when it comes to pianos, strings, 
Um, right. And especially synthesizers, where it's just an oscillator, you know, does yeah. it make a difference whether the digital component is in a piece of physical hardware or it's just a plugin that you download? Like the so creatively, no. Creatively, you know, probably plugins are better. I, they are, but um, you know, but using analog or physical keyboard, physical uh, machine somehow makes you come up with better idea i mean at least for me you know come up with uh more creative thoughts more creative sounds um that you wouldn't perhaps think of when you're using a plugin because you know when you're in the box when you're using a, a plugin when you're using a, a vst you can do what you can do on it is endless but when you're restricted to just this machine there's a lot you can do but i feel like it 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 makes you focus more on on the music and less on the the timbre of each note, for example. Uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Like th- this kind of connects to what we were talking about in uh, the other episode that we did. With yeah, a little bit. We, we're we're talking about yeah. like how limitations can uh, inspire a little bit better than if That's you just actually what give I was thinking about slate when I was giving say, you this Go, answer. Like make something good, and it's like. Yeah, it, it, that, that's actually the, what I was thinking about when I gave you this answer. Like, you know, you you told me yeah. last time, uh, give yourself restrictions, give yourself limitations, and you'll you'll be able to just go past your your writer's block or whatever, or just yeah. create something. Yeah, yeah, I, I strongly believe in that. Definitely. I mean, it's it's something that works for me. I guess, I guess yeah. it's not necessarily like a a universal rule of of writing, but the things that I'm most impressed by creatively are things where it's like, wow, this guy just put himself in this really restrictive, awkward box and yeah. he made something incredible with that limitation. It's like every time, I feel like this happens a lot, where some movie will come out and the, I know we're supposed to be talking about music, but bear with yeah, me. Yeah, we're going to get back um, to it. You're just, a movie will come cool. out and it will be marketed as look at how much of a pain in the ass this must have been to execute and shoot and and light and all these mm-hmm. things like the revenant everyone talks about like how mind blowing that movie was and i remember yeah. maybe not part of the trailer but a big part of the marketing was like only natural light we only use the sun to light this entire movie which is so difficult they're shooting it in the cold there's like it's film does not respond well to those kind of conditions everything's wet and then they just have these long uncut sequences that were just like probably a nightmare to orchestrate and i feel like there is a musical equivalent to that where where if you if you make your own job harder like I, I was listening to, I, I'm going to have to Google the name later, but there was an artist that I was listening to. They recorded an entire album in this like underground cave. It was like a salt mine that was abandoned oh. in the 30s. And, and she's a very like sort of uh, the, the location and how that informs the performance is something that's very big to her. Okay. And, uh, and she was like, we have to do this. Like, we're going to drag a generator down there put it in another section we're gonna like run all these cables and producer probably hated it like the the reverb was there it was impressive and it sounded expansive and interesting and it gave a different flavor to the mix those things are definitely true but he's like is this worth lugging all this equipment spending all this extra money instead of just like sitting in a comfortable air-conditioned studio you know just like executing it like a normal record and it's yeah. like, I, I really respect the artists that just sort of push themselves into these like 
horribly inconvenient scenarios just for a hope, really. It's not even a guarantee. It's just like a hope. It's like maybe this will really like push me into doing something great. Like greatness never comes from a position of comfort, as they say. I don't know who said that. That's probably a Confucius or something. But I'm fascinated by examples like that. That remind that makes me feel more. It makes me feel more like it's an artistic. Like never mind the sound. The sound can be re- recreated, but the fact that she wanted to record in the cave is more of like you said a statement. It's it's a. I'm not sure if you said that, but it, it feels like more of a statement. It's an it's an artist. It's an artistic. I I don't want to say installation because that's incorrect, but uh, it feels more artistic. Sloppy Mad, oh, sorry, <laughs> Madison. Sloppy Jane is the band. Sloppy Madison Jane. Madison is okay. the record. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the album features a 21-piece orchestra recorded 200 feet below the earth in Lost World Caverns, West Virginia is is where those cabins are. Which I think that that's like a part of the United States that has a, a bunch of really like elaborate cave structures, and it's a bit of like a tourist spot. Yeah, I don't know. Actually, she probably had to rent the cave. How wild is that? That's wild. And he's That's like, okay, he, you need to keep out all the tourists for the three weeks that we need to finish <laughs> this entire album. Like, you, you really got to practice beforehand. You, if, you can't be messing up takes when this, when the stakes are that high. You're yeah. Like, imagine trying to turn a profit on this thing, explaining to the label, be like, okay, so here's the gimmick. <laughs> and they're like, excuse me, you're yeah. expecting to make money off of this? And it's just, you know, they did it. You got to respect But, you know, it's, it's a performance. I think that's really cool. And it, it sparked conversation, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about it. And I mean, sure it, it sparked controversy, which is the real controversy, thing. Controversy, which a lot sparks of people, conversation. It, 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 yeah. You know? A, a lot of people were congratulating. Like, wow, it's so ambitious, so cool, blah, blah, blah. And, and they felt like the cavern recording translated through to the final product and then there were other people that kind of i guess naysayers who i mean that's a totally valid opinion they were like this is yeah. just like uh artistic like masturbatory nonsense this is just like this uh, ego silliness of like look at me i i'm so like uh i'm so artsy and and fancy i went to a cave to record this thing when yeah the the, the claim like i've heard people say this is like no one would be paying attention to these songs. They're not that different. It's just the gimmick that's the su- it's like lacks substance. And, I, and that's now a discussion that people are having. And as we all know about controversy, that is a f- the best form of, of uh, free marketing. Soundspace is proudly sponsored by Laza Audio Technologies. Use code SOUNDSPACE for 30% off any purchase. Transform your sound with Glow, a mask granulator, or with the modern degradation of Kodak by visiting laza.io today. Absolutely. So I'm willing to bet that the, that was the thought in the heads of the suits that agreed to fund this project. Is that, you know what? People are going to be furiously, furiously discussing this in comment sections all over the world. Let's do it. Absolutely, 100%. And I feel like that somehow ties into what we're talking about today is um, the controversy, sorry, sparks conversation and conversation sparks inspiration and and, uh, influences new ideas. 
mm-hmm. for other artists, for upcoming artists. I want to I wanna actually uh, name everyone here because I, I think this is the coolest thing. So the, yeah, the label was Saddest Factory, which is the which was founded in 2020, like a recent thing by Phoebe Bridgers. Are you familiar with her? She no, kind of popped off in like 2019. She's like a folk, folk pop sort of sing. Phoebe Bridgers. Okay. Really, like she she makes really wonderful music. I I like her a lot, especially that uh, Punisher album. But anyway, we're getting uh, sidetracked. What were we originally talking about? How did we get talking about Get-tronado. structures in, in Virginia? <laughs> yes, we're going way back. Tara, so going oh, back. Okay. So speaking of Ketronata, you said you listened to Tora Imoy. What are your thoughts on this? Because I've been uh, a fan for a while, so I'm excited to to hear what you thought. Oh my god! Like it gives me. Um, well, it's it's got that funk. It's got that soul. It's got that like not so much R and B, maybe a little. Um, but it, it's just it feels like a new disco ish. Would you would you disagree? Really? I, yeah, somehow. I wasn't getting a lot of disco. I mean, I was definitely getting a bit of well, funk, funk in there. Yeah, funk. Yeah, and, and, and funk and disco are definitely connected. So we're, we're yeah. probably just calling the same thing uh, di- different names. But I do see what you mean. Yeah, and, you know, maybe I'm just being biased because if you ask me, like, what's my favorite musical genre, I, would, I, I wouldn't I would even be able to answer you because it's, it, it is a mixture of, uh, of, like, funk, house, R&B, Oh yeah, all that you know. K Tronada is what I would say. What's your favorite music style? K Tronada, or I is, guess is now he, I can say Toroi Moi. Your favorite artist? Yeah, he's number one. Wow. Yeah, I think so. Like at the moment, you know, but that could change. Like, yeah, that's week. the thing is that <laughs> for me it changes every day. I I really could not pick. I I have a a um a list that, like a, in rotation of people that are like amongst my favorites. That's really all I could say though. I, I can't be like, this is my number one, and that's right. my number two. Like Sometimes people give you a list like it's prepared. Yeah. And like, I, I don't know how you have settled on one thing. I mean, I, you can't. I, I listen to a lot of music, so I understand my, my tastes are kind of going to be more in, in constant flux than, uh, than a, a casual listener or a casual music fan. Definitely. But, uh, I really am all over, the, all over the place. Same. Like My, my music playlist is, is, is just some Frankenstein mashup <laughs> of like metal and you know punk and and you know hip hop and and house music and tech house and all that. Yeah. You well, know? It, uh, there actually is very very interestingly there is a Wikipedia page that is kind of a uh, an encyclopedic list of every genre from you know big broad stuff like jazz or rock to like little weird micro scenes that just exist in like the southern part of a specific town in Botswana where they play like this weird little specific right. sound and it's just like if you scroll through this list I mean I've I listened to a lot of music but I had heard of maybe a quarter of these names it, it okay. was just uh, so much and that's when I realized it's like oh when I when I feel like I've heard everything, I've heard like one percent. I've heard, for the most part, American, oh, yeah. British, or you know, music from those areas, because obviously that is the stuff that gets exported to the rest of the world. Because, well, I mean, yeah, because of a lot of different uh, complicated uh, 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 social and and uh, political reasons. But that's a that's a different conversation. But uh, for sure. It, it, there's so many little like little scenes, little communities 
throughout the world that we just oh, have yeah, no awareness of. What we're used to listening to is 12-tone music, but there's like microtonal music out there that that most people have never even heard of. Don't even know what is what it is. Yeah, and I'm glad you know? that that's sort of bled into uh, you know mainstream America, like Western music a little bit. I'm glad that it's kind of been discovered. And not that, you know, Adele's next album is going to be tw- uh, 24-tone or anything, <laughs> but there are certain groups like uh, King Gizzard. Everyone loves King Gizzard, if you're mm. familiar with them. That I think they made a whole, they made a whole like double album that was primarily 24 tone music. Like they bought guitars with like twice as many frets and they sort of learned, obviously that is not their background, um, but they just sort of got into it. Like something about the sound fascinated them and then they found a a new avenue to write through that. And I cannot imagine, it's almost like starting from scratch. It's like learning how to write a song from scratch again because it's such a different headspace. Completely. To just use a scale that you've never heard in your life, all these you conventions that you double sort of the amount of chords. Yeah, no, 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 more than double more exponentially. Than double. Yeah, that sounds. I think it would be a, a silly a square statement. <laughs> I, actually, I have no idea what the math is. I shouldn't say. It's probably like some sort of complicated formula, like the amount of possible note combinations in Western music, and then it would be like to the twenty-fourth power <laughs> more because that's now how many extra notes you yeah have. I, I really don't know and i i do not have the math skills to figure it out but i would be actually curious how that how that works if you know any uh if you know any math majors because i certainly do not shout out to all the math majors shout out to the math tell majors. us what would you say that it was the beatles that kind of got the ball rolling on eastern sounds sort of bleeding into the uh the the, the palette of of listeners in you know England and, and America because oh, that, that that was really that, I can't think of an earlier example of someone just blatantly going to another country and hearing a bunch of stuff and be like whoa this is a neat uh, the, like instrument and then they just bring it back with them start doodling on it in the studio and now like it's funny enough listening back to those those Beatles records where they had had just gone to India and, and taken a you know a sitar lesson or two mm-hmm. it is very it sounds. I don't want to say that it's aged badly because the Beatles are, you know, amazing songwriters and 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 have many incredible albums under their belt, but it hits the ear very differently today than it probably did in 1966. Right. I, I think I'm getting that year correct because at the time I would imagine that the sound that they were dabbling in was so foreign and so utterly like just alien to everyone that it that there's a mysticism to it and now that you know travel be- becomes cheaper and and more common and you're much more likely to be exposed to uh, music from other countries throughout your life then the the air of mystique around those sounds is definitely gone yeah you don't even here. have to travel to hear it <laughs> yeah exactly at two clicks you YouTube, can hear all Spotify. of these sounds it's just it's not yeah. a, a this exotic, exciting thing that it once was. So I'm not saying that those those songs are bad, but I I definitely am sort of I, when I hear them, I try to put myself in them. It's like, what would this have been like? Because right now it sounds a little bit silly and a little bit uh, like they don't they clearly don't know what they're doing. Like a master, like virtuoso sitar player would hear John Lennon plinking plonking around on this thing and go, "Oh God, what are you doing?" You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that's the, kind of the first thing that pops into my head. Yeah. As much as I do. But it introduces music. it. Yeah. And it was a big hit. Like, I, th- I believe people loved it. Yeah. 
I believe it was a bit like I, I don't think they've ever had an uh, an album that was uh, a flop or that that was not very successful. The, I think that there's there's a hump in the music business when it comes to uh, convincing a, a record label to you know, you're trying to get past the suits and you're trying to get some creative risky stuff out there. And what you're probably told is no, go with something safe. You get a lot of notes. You get a lot of uh, guys coming into your session and saying like, "Hey, let's go for this other sound," and and sort of interfering with the creative process. And that happens. Yeah. That happens in the middle because when you're just starting out, no, there's no stakes. There's no uh, record contracts. You're just some guy in your bedroom making music, so you can do whatever you want. You have freedom. And then yeah. when yeah, the money starts coming you in, you know, you're a mid-tier artist. That's when interference starts to happen. My point is, there is a there's a space at the top of the mountain when you're so successful that no record executive would assume to tell you what to do to make your stuff more marketable. And I think that the, there's a few groups like the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or even Michael Jackson to a certain degree that pushed past that threshold. Well, and then clean. after a while, producers and, and you know, executive producers especially, just stopped trying to tell them what to do. It's like, you know what? Whatever they're doing, is everything they touch is gold like King yeah. Midas. We just need to stop interfering with them because yeah. they, they, have, they have something that we don't understand, but the public is infatuated with. So the Beatles got away with doing some really, really weird stuff on some very, very mainstream records, which is, yeah. I think, why they got away with, like, you know, Going to another country, borrowing some sounds. You got to take risks because otherwise everything is literally going to start sounding the same. If you don't yeah. take risks and experiment with new, uh, with new sounds, with new techniques, with were new... you about to say Queen? I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted that's an even better example than than the Beatles. To be honest, they they yeah. got so strange. And as a as a Queen absolute maniac for queen that i wasn't at least in high school and still to this day i i, I have uh i had a blind spot back then even their bad material i would defend now as a as a, a more mature adult i can i can acknowledge that they have some some weaker songs and some stronger songs but they're still one of my all-time favorites and they've done so much strange stuff yeah and the the go-to example well, is bohemian rhapsody, bohemian rhapsody says, oh you know, look at that song fusion of you know opera uh, blues rock and there, roll. there's rock there's some ballad there's some opera there's some prog there's some there's a bit of everything in there and that that is the go-to example that people say like look, look how experimental yet successful this thing was how rare in one song <laughs> it, it definitely is yeah but there's some deep cuts bonkers there's some there's some gold nuggets that are far far less uh widely appreciated yeah. in the deep cuts of those albums especially the early ones where it's like you can hear there's some material on queen 2 like yeah. uh the black queen they have a song called the black queen that is i can hear every piece of what was to come in that song it's like they had the bohemian rhapsody formula kind of developing it was like in its infancy the sounds had not come to fruition yet, but I can 100% hear where it's about to go. And it's really exciting to hear that. It's like, oh, you're, like, you're, catching, a, a, you're catching something in the midpoint of its evolution, which is right. very rare and, and interesting to make that connection. You have a eureka moment of like, oh, that's where that came from. They were, they, <laughs> they didn't just, it didn't just spring into Freddie Mercury's head. He was kind of working on this and tweaking this, this sort of formula for, very, for many years. Absolutely. 
And uh, and so many eras it too. It takes talent to to do it well. Queen has at like five, I don't know, four, three or four different eras to their career. Not even that many albums, just a dozen or so albums. But they had like a, like a rock phase at the beginning where they definitely sounded very Beatles, very Zeppelin. You can hear exactly what who their influences are. And then they kind of grew into their own. And that was like the Bohemian Rhapsody phase, like 75. Yeah. And then they had like this album that uh, Jazz, like the name of the album was Jazz kind of all over the place in terms of genre. They're just trying anything. Well, that's and then not, they went not, disco that's for a while. Queen, that's, that's most artists. Most artists, they start you know one one way. Yeah, I mean, unless someone is truly confident in who they are, most artists, I feel, would just start one way, sounding like one artist that the, that influences them the most. And then, uh, and then eventually, the more music they release, the more they experiment with other with other subgenres and other and other ideas until it eventually becomes their own sound. Right. Yeah, okay, I, I see what you mean now. Uh, yeah. I, I was going to say like most artists I I would listen say, to any old album don't necessarily of your favorite artist. make it to that point. You know, it's like I I feel like Coldplay's been sounding like a discount Radiohead for like 20 years now and I'm just like <laughs> I'm waiting for y'all to get get your own, you know, put your own thing in. I'm exaggerating. I'm, I'm I'm being too hard on on Coldplay, but there are better examples that I could use. I don't know. Limp Biscuit sounds like a terrible version of Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> I have uh, like that, that there are certain bands that for some reason just become a punchline. I guess Nickelback is the biggest one where it's like I at a certain point after 20 years of jokes, I start to feel as much as I still agree, it's like yes, the sound is, is not very nice. I start to just feel bad for them. <laughs> and it's weird to feel bad for like a multimillionaire successful uh, artist with like platinum records, several platinum records. But like imagine your the very name of your creation is associated with just like being a crappier version of like Nirvana and like that whole 90s scene. <laughs> it's like I, if that happened to me, I'd be like... I'd be wiping my tears away with the 20s, you know, or like $100 bills, you know, I'd be like, ah, why don't the people like me? <laughs> what would your reaction be if they just came out with like a masterpiece album and proved everyone wrong? Do you think that's in their future? I'd be proud of them. <laughs> I'd be happy for them. No one would accept it. They'd be like, it can't be like to be in denial. He's like, there's no way this is the same people. It has to be a... Yeah, so they have ghostwriters. Have- <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. that's a big... Oh my, can we talk about ghostwriters for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Are you a fan of Kendrick Lamar? I love him. He's he's the goat. Okay. I was listening to uh, Tepempa Butterfly the other day, and mm-hmm. he kind of takes a shot at uh, ghostwriters. Okay. And he, he says, uh, but a rapper with a ghostwriter, what the fuck happened? And then later has the line about like, mm-hmm. but most of y'all sh- share bars like you got the bottom bunk in a two-man cell, which is a yeah. line that I love. <laughs> okay. So he's taking shots at ghostwriters, right? Yeah. Do you think that those lines are referring to the Dr. Dre controversy, who I might add is literally the executive producer and main like uh, funding guy of the To Pimp a Butterfly album. Pretty much the guy who discovered Kendrick and put him on the map. No. I was like, does Kendrick have the, the cones to go after the guy who literally created his, or like made his I career? Mean- I wouldn't featured on the album. That's bold, isn't it? And I don't know if it's intentional. Is that just like a a, a sort of inside joke between them? I really did not know. 
because I believe. Oh, I, I mean, whether, when, if um, it's an inside joke, then that that. But the reference is still there, right? I I think it's a bit of a stretch. It's just my weird little. Uh, I'm sure this information is out theory. there somewhere. But uh, the the reason why it's a stretch is because Dr. Dre is not really shy about it. He's not one of these uh, guys like Drake who will blatantly use a ghostwriter on on everything and then deny it. He's like, what? No, I would I would never do that. He he's kind of just like, I'm a producer. I make beats. I, I'm like the the main brain behind these things. It, it, writing is a collaborative process for me. Sometimes people write bars that I that I end up performing. Like he, he's kind of blatant about it, yeah. Um, which is why it makes him makes it hard to criticize him for it, really, because he just kind of owns it. Um, unlike a a Drake, perhaps maybe that's who Kendrick Lamar was taking shots at. I really don't know, but uh, I do find it kind of interesting that this is a uniquely this is uniquely a hip hop debate because it was the norm in the music industry for. Well, I mean, pre- before the existence of recording, if you include that, it was the norm to be performing music written by other people for all of time. Yeah, I mean, like still folk today. music that was that was passed down generationally, purely, yeah. uh, you know, orally, like it just or uh, verbally, like you teach your the next generation how to perform the song, and then they sort of over the years it evolves and you know gets passed down and you put your own spin on it and everything like playing a game of telephone with old old music yeah and it's like i, that's, I love that's, that. that's all great right that yeah. that's all okay but then if one rapper borrows a couple lines sounds vaguely similar in their flow to somebody else or god forbid uses a ghostwriter it is the topic of the day and i don't really know why i know there's a focus on just in general in hip-hop there's a focus on realness like you have to be 100 authentic there's no there's no room for uh putting on an act or like being fake in any way it's just a big part of the culture i guess it's just that like it's the only reason i can think of yeah why it's such a fixation it's funny how there why there's a stigma to ghostwriting to be honest i mean I get it, but we all know it happens. We all know artists that do it. There are artists that I love like, that do it. Uh, one example I could think of is is uh, probably Monster by uh, Rihanna and Eminem. Did Eminem not write his verses? Uh, no. Well, the, I think the the hook was written by BB Rexa. BB Rexa. Yeah, she wrote oh. the hook to Monster. I'm not very familiar with BB Rexa. I've definitely heard the name. No, not many people are, and but she is guaranteed she wrote many songs that most people know okay i feel like there there are a lot of the artists out there that made their way into the industry as a writer like they were just like sort of not, not even ghostwriter yeah. but like in the pop world they don't even say ghostwriter it's just assumed that there is another there's like 14 writers credited on one song yeah. and yeah and you, no matter how like totally. simple the lyrics are there's just a shocking giant crowd of people that all had to write this together let's get back into let, let's uh, talk about music what is a musical yeah. thing What's on your mind, sir? What's on what my mind? Been? Um, I'm thinking about drum and bass, dubstep. Those two things. What do you know of that? Of those uh, things. I enjoy dubstep. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I did. I mean, I did in like 2012, and I think yeah. that's. I'm I'm not like a true original dubstep fan where I was like cool enough to be. Oh, I liked it before no. Skrillex popped off no, and and same. I'll pop pop stars started putting dubstep in the in the bridge of yeah. their songs i'm not one of those cool guys i know a few of them and they're definitely not a fan of those years those mainstream dubstep years however 
I have nostalgia for that era because I was uh, I was like born in '97, so like 14 to 16 was the dubstep yeah, years for me. That was, and it's like it's kind of quaint to listen back to those songs, and it's like y- hearing it there. Y- you go like, okay, this this um, Ariana Grande song should not have dubstep in it. It sounds goofy and dated and silly now, but it's kind of it brings a smile to my face, you know? Yeah, I'm like I remember when this was everywhere. Yeah, but I remember the introduction to dubstep that urged me to to deep to do like a deep dive of like um, the origin, you know, the UK dubstep, the the purest dubstep. You know, I can, can't think of any t- of any artists. Were you were you listening? I, like, I don't way know enough back to the days of like two step and dub music. Oh yeah, like oh, before yeah. they were kind of thrown together. Yeah, in this. and like like I said, I don't know enough about dubstep to really talk about it, but definitely the OG dubstep. Um, so you music. you were a UK garage guy before dubstep? Uh, no, I wasn't. I, I was just intrigued by it, so I wanted to do some research. And you know, you get into a rabbit hole of just music researching and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I uh, I definitely should do a, a more thorough. Um, exploration because I, I really something that i really love to do is kind of pull at the thread of of a sound that i enjoy and be like where did this sound come from like if i enjoy dubstep it's mm-hmm. like okay well I, I haven't really yeah. heard much two-step like some uk garage what is the origin of it and then you go you can find yourself like listening to reggae and you're like oh these are where these rhythms came from and then they kind of <laughs> added like yeah you just go way far back into the history i love doing these kind of oh yeah chronological deep dives of like how a sound evolved into existence yeah, yeah and it evolves into like it like dubstep evolved uh into like i like how you said devolved like the little freudian slip there it definitely <laughs> did devolve <laughs> it definitely got worse <laughs> As no soon shade, as a bunch of people, <laughs> as soon as a bunch of kids in bedrooms with laptops realized that they no, could just add a bunch no, of like, no, no. Remember what we were talking about? Remember what we were talking about? These kids in the bedroom making these like on, on like a low budget is what creates new genres, and it's, it's what creates future genres. It's, it's what creates um, new art. I mean, some some of the boundaries. The the, yeah, the ones that are like actually care about, it. but sometimes it's just like a, a a brief like interest or like a I I did I I think I did like pottery for a summer. It's like I'm not a potter, like it's not who I am at all. But it's like <laughs> yeah. technically I've done it, and I think that producing music cheaply on a laptop is that to a lot of people. Like it's just like a quick interest that just comes and goes, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But uh, it does result in a bit of an oversaturation in whatever genre is quickest and easiest uh, and most popular. And a lot of these things end up on SoundCloud. You have to r- kind of root through a lot of like disposable, uh, samey sounding stuff to, f- to find something like really different and, and unique. But it's always been that we way. We should probably conclude. We're wrapping up. Yeah, we should probably wrap up. Q, why don't you tell people where they can Google you or find you or any of that? Uh, sure. I mean, I... I think the main thing, the main music thing that I do is Instagram. Uh, yeah. I post there a lot. And it's just my first name and my last name, Caduce Gordon. Uh, Q-U-D-D-U-S-G-O-R-D-O-N. And uh, nice. that's right. There's no other Caduce Gordons on Instagram. It's just me. Okay, cool. That's good. So you can find me on Instagram as well. It's akachi.audio. That's A-C-A-C-I dot audio. And on my website, akachi-audio.com. All right, well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, this has been another episode of Soundspace. This has been a conversational episode with me and Q. 
And before we sign out, don't forget to give GoPro Kyo a follow on Twitter. He makes all of the artwork for our channel, so thank you, Kyo. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Everything will be linked in the description. This has been another episode of Soundspace. Cheers. <laughs>